Good evening, church. It's great to be here and good to see all of you out this evening. If you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 15, and uh, we'll be using verse 8 through 10, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Here we have a, a trio of parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And uh, I'm going to talk here a little bit in our introduction. Uh, my introduction could have been a point. I don't know why I didn't make it one. But uh, it, it's a little bit longer, but you'll see what I'm doing with it. And then we'll get into our three points. And um, it's 20 after. We should be done around 6.30. That was a joke. We'll be done at 22. No, I, I don't think we will. But I want to try to move through this one and uh, see if I can get it done a little bit quicker. So our theme is searching for the lost. Luke 15, verse 8 through 10 says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, searches carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This coin that this woman was looking for was no ordinary coin. This coin was probably one of the coins of her endowment given to her by her husband. Maybe we could liken it to a wedding ring today, but it was a little bit more than that. Uh, to lose this coin, it would call into question her virtue. Uh, it was more than just a, a 16 cent piece. She was looking for this coin that was missing because it was probably part of her frontlet. What do you mean, Dave? What do you mean your frontlet? Well, a husband would give, this would kind of like be her retirement or to take care of her if something would happen to her. It was like a headband type thing. And there'd be 10 coins and somehow they hooked these coins to this. And depending on how rich your husband was, he may give you silver coins, a uh, denarii, one day's wage, or it could be um, the, um, the other coin, which is worth a lot more and would add up a lot more. It's a, the, the bigger silver coin. But anyway, if she loses one of those, people would look and say, what's going on? You only have nine there. Okay, or if it breaks and they go flying all through her house and she loses a couple of these coins, again, this would have been a terrible thing because the husband gave her this if something would happen. If he died in battle or whatever, this was going to help take care of her uh, in her old age and, and so forth. So this would be a terrible thing. It could almost be likened to maybe a very expensive, maybe 50th wedding anniversary um, necklace or something that your husband would buy, buy a, a woman, and it has big diamonds in it, and maybe you lost one of these one or two carat diamonds or something out of it, and they were thousands of dollars or something in that nature. Uh, to lose it, again, it, it was costly. It's, it's valuable. This upset her. She, she went after this thing and was sweeping and looking, as the text says. And again, this silver was probably not just silver, Think about it. This coin probably bared an image. 
I don't think it would have just been chunks of silver there. They would have been silver coins that were currency that could be used. And when we think of a coin, we think of that image that's on there. Well, man, too, we bear the image of God, its owner. But we're lost, right? All sin and fall short of the glory of God. While lost, we're of no use to God, are we? That coin, while it's lost, it can't purchase anything. Can't comfort anybody, can't be used to pay off any credit or anything in that nature. It doesn't really have any real value unless it's found. So it must be found. It's important. Church, we must search for the lost. We need to try and find them. I'm sure we can come up with a plethora of excuses of why we don't want to search or why we don't want to. But that's not right. The Lord has commissioned his church, commissioned the apostles right before he ascended into heaven. But that commission has come down through the generations with all Christians, and it's here now. It's in our lap. We need to also go and search for the lost. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We then call this the Great Commission. Some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his men, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to uh, follow all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." This passage here says, making disciples of all nations. Wherever your world is, wherever your nation is, we need to be able to do what we can. And again, in our missions and that, we want to support those things that are local and statewide and in our country. But we want to be able to support good missions that are abroad in other countries too, so that those people have the ability to be able to hear the gospel. And as we go to all nations, this would involve people of different races and countries and customs and languages. But sometimes when people go there, governments of these other countries, they interfere, not allowing missionaries to preach the true gospel. They don't want to see their countrymen become converted. They want their citizens to continue as atheists, as Muslims, as Hinduists, and so on. And again, some of those countries, they have strict laws. They'll lock you up. Some countries, they'll, they'll shoot you. Some of our missionaries that have come in here told us stories. They're like, man, they were right down the street, the terrorists, and firing their AK-47s up in the air, and we were scared, and they ushered me out the back door, and we jumped in a vehicle and left. And Because you can't go and preach in Jesus' name. So it's hard sometimes. I don't see that here in America yet. Is anybody? We, we, we're still free to go into our cities and towns and villages and uh, wherever and still teach and preach. But even in America today, we have some unlikely prospects of the gospel that have proven to be very fruitful. Now, what do you mean, Dave? Well, there were some unlikely prospects in the old or the first century, back when the church started. We're going to mention a few of those. And I'm sure people would liken some today. Oh, we don't want to go to them. But you see, many of these people that we thought maybe weren't good prospects, they've become fruitful when they've become converted. 
Matthew 18, 3 says, Truly I say to you, this is Jesus talking, unless you change or unless you're converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Acts 3, 19 says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So again, we want to be out there trying to change people and convert them, have them added to the kingdom. But let's consider some first century conversions. And these men not have been considered good prospects, but they were lost. They needed to be found. They needed the Lord. One of these individuals was a man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul was speaking before the Druze at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to go in a little bit of depth here with Paul. Some of these others, I may not read all the scriptures, but I'm going to take a few scriptures here. Acts 22, 3 through 5, he's talking to these people, and he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, Strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them and I also received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners and punish them. <laughs> Paul here is confessing. He's saying, I was a bad guy. Um, I was a creeper. I was persecuting the, the church. I was arresting these people, even putting some of them to death because of their stand for the gospel. Okay, who wants to go preach to Paul in the first century? Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> we probably run in the other way, right? Uh, he'd become, and I, I remember the movies when I was a kid, Planet of the Apes, and the, they were collecting all the humans running through the field, and they had these wild wagons, and they were made out of wood. They were like little jail cells made out of logs and everything, and uh, the apes were riding around with their guns and everything, and the humans were in there, and I just imagined one of those type of wagons and Christians being in there, and Saul and soldiers and everybody taking people back to Jerusalem uh, in handcuffs and chains. Well, in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 15, he gets blinded on that road. And notice what happens here. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up. Go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus called Saul, for he's praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, uh-uh, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> he says, Lord, I've heard from many people, this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So he's saying, Lord, no. This guy's not a good prospect. <laughs> I don't want to go talk to him. He's coming here for me. He wants to arrest me and kill me, take me back in chains. But verse 15 says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear 
my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Wow. Didn't look like the God he'd be talking to. He said, hey, this is what I did. <laughs> Ananias knows this is who he is. But he becomes converted. He becomes a Christian. He's baptized. And it says there in Acts 9, <clears throat> the second part of verse 19 through 21, we see Saul is converted. And he does change. And notice the change in his life. It says now for several days, he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed. And they were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? See, the people knew who this guy was. Maybe the Christian church, when you went in there, wherever they were meeting, they had a wanted poster of Saul. If you see, turn, run. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Well, we know what happens to him there. They want to kill him. He escapes, heads down to Jerusalem. And a little bit further there in Acts 9, 26 through 30, it says, when he came to Jerusalem, that's this Saul, he, he tried repeatedly, repeatedly to associate with the disciples. And yet they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. They thought maybe he was on some uh, undercover ops. He wants to get in there and find who all the Christians are and the leaders and the apostles and find out where they live maybe. And then he's going to turn and go, ha ha! Get them, boys, and send his guards and his people after him. We may have thought the same thing if we were back then. But Barnabas took hold of him, brought him to the apostles, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Now when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Sarsus. Here's this guy, Saul. Would not have been a good prospect but he was a great prospect. He did great things for Christ and for Christianity. Look at the missionary journeys that he went on. Look at the churches that he started. Half of the New Testament scriptures are written by Saul of Tarsus, whose name was changed to Paul. You see what I'm saying? There may be people out there in our communities or that we work with and we might think that person's a creep. No way am I talking to that person. But boy, if they're converted, they could do great, wonderful things. We don't know what the Lord can do with them. What about Cornelius? Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 6. Now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Whoa, I'm not going to talk to him. He's a Roman. He's a tough guy. He's a soldier. He's a Gentile. I'm not going, we can't go to talk to him. No way. What's the next verse say? But he was a devout man, one who feared God and all of his household. 
made many charitable contributions to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And it goes on that the angel told him to go and send for Peter. Peter had that vision, which he realized, hey, nothing's unclean to him. And he went and said, God has no respecter of persons. And he was able to convert Cornelius and his household and soldiers and others who were there. What about the Ethiopian eunuch? He's not a good prospect, right? Acts 8, 26 through 40. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get ready, go to the south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got ready, went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasury. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Philip could have said, no, this guy is a foreigner. He's rich. Look at that. He must have money or something with him. He's surrounded with soldiers. He's in that chariot. They'll shoot me. They'll run me down. They'll chop my head off if I try to get over there and get close to this guy. Look at the robes that he has and the jewelry and, and so on and so forth that he's wearing. There's no way. This guy's not a good prospect. He's a Gentile. He's from Ethiopia. There's no way. But what happens? He goes and joins up with him. He's reading from Isaiah. And from that scripture, he teaches, preaches Jesus to him. And he becomes converted. Tradition says he went back, started a church in Ethiopia, preached to many people and did great things. But in our mind, we may have prejudiced ideals and so forth and be like, no way, I'm not talking to this guy. But he was important. What about Matthew, the tax collector? No way. Well, in Luke 5, 27 through 39, it says, after that, he, that's Jesus. He went out and looked at the tax collector named Levi, sitting in the tax office and said to him, follow me. What? Well, let's read on here. It explains itself. And he left everything behind and he got up and began following him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling to him, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, he's calling Levi a sinner. He's calling all of his buddies that were involved in tax collecting sinners. He's saying these guys are thieves. They steal money off of us. They take more taxes than they should. They did the same thing to Zacchaeus. And what does Levi do? He jumps up and follows Jesus. Calls all of his buddies together before he leaves. And I bet you there was some preaching or teaching going on. He wanted to see some of them converted and also added. But what did Jesus say? He answered them and said, It's not for those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance but sinners. How about another guy that we may not think would be too good? What about the Philippian jailer? What? Another Roman, a soldier, a Gentile. He's got Paul and Silas locked up. This guy was mean, hard, tough guy. Probably didn't want to talk to him. Probably told him to shut up. 
this, that, and the other, but the earthquake woke him up and he was going to kill himself. Paul stopped him. He heard him singing and probably preaching and doing what all they were doing. And before the night was over, he cleaned their wounds up and him and his household were converted. And again, I don't know what all this guy may have done, but he was an unlikely prospect. And we see that he was converted. All of these men could have been questionable candidates to become a Christian. Excuses could have been made why we should not talk to them by each and every one of us. We can do the same thing with some of our neighbors or classmates or co-workers or other people. But sometimes those that we don't think are good prospects can be. And they can be converted and can do great things for the Lord. Well, what can we learn? Real quick. We must not prejudge the hearts of men. Who would have preached to Paul, Cornelius, Ethiopian eunuch, the tax collector, the jailer? Would we let prejudice interfere? Do we let prejudice interfere with us? Why we maybe don't talk to certain people. You see, our duty is to preach, to teach, to share the good news of the gospel. You know, and then God will take care of the rest. He'll take care of the results. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 55, 6 through 11 says, talks about when the word goes out, it's going to do what God wants it to do. I'll read those verses. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. The wicked abandon his ways and the unrighteous person his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and your thoughts than, uh, or my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it its produce and sprout, and providing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11. So will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the purpose for which I sent it. Now, how does his word get out? Isaiah, you're going to have to go tell that word. We're going to have to go tell that word. Now, am I going to stand up here and say everybody's going to be converted when we tell them? No, we know that. But some, it's going to. And at least God's purpose is going to be done because what will happen at the judgment? I never heard anything about the gospel. I never heard anybody. Well, you know what? I bet you. He'll say, yep, here, watch the screen. Here, you heard it. You rejected it. Oh, look, here, you heard it again. You rejected it. You see, his word's going to do what it wants. And who knows, it could be at the end, when people say, I never heard it, we see that people have heard it. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says this, I planted, that's Paul. Paul said, I planted seeds. But then Apollos came along and he watered them. But God was causing the growth. We need to go and plant seed or water seed or fertilize the seed or whatever. And God's ultimately going to cause it to grow. It's like the parable of the sower. You see, the sower went out 
to sow his seed, which was the word of God. And he sowed. And what happened? Some fell on the road. Some fell on the rocky soil. Some fell among the thorns. But some fell upon the good soil. And what happened? There it produced different amounts. Our job is to go out and to sow the seeds. We're to be sowers, not soil inspectors. Sow the seed. God will provide the increase for us. You know, some people will love the gospel. They'll hear, hear the message and say, man, that's just what I was looking for. That's what I needed. And then there's others that are going to hate it. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16 says, to one, an aroma of death to death. They're already the walking dead and you preach to them and what happens? They rejected. They're going to go to death, the second death. But to another, they're an aroma of life to life. You know, here they hear the word and the word just keeps building in them and they are converted and they're learning and they're growing and it's good. So we need to just be out there planning, watering, doing what we can and God will provide the increase. Secondly, Christ can change the hearts of men. We can become new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that's Jesus, in order that our body of sin may be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 16 there of Romans 6 says, Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. So whoever we decide we're going to partake of, if we partake of the sin, you're, you're going to go to death. If you take of, again, or obedient and do what God wants you to, then it's going to result in righteousness, right living and doing the things that are good. So we can become new creature, creatures in Christ. And we can again be able to escape the death. And that aroma and that smell and that putrid stink of death. And we can be a sweet aroma to God. We must put on the new man. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. I'm not going to read all those verses. But verse 23 and 24 says this. And that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We need to renew our minds and change our minds and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. <clears throat> you see, as our point states there, Christ can change the hearts of men. He can make us new creations, new creatures. He can make us a new man. And he can change our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11 talks about all these sins. It says there, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexual, 
sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor the homosexuals, nor thieves, or nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But some of that group changed, it says in verse 11. Such were some of you. Some of you were these sinners that I just mentioned. But now you've been washed. Now you're sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And remember, I mentioned this morning in this sermon on Ephesus, and I told you I'd bring this out this evening. Notice the conversion there of those people in Ephesus. Acts 19, 18 through 20. It says, also many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily there after Paul went and started the church there in Ephesus and was preaching. They had changed lives, changed so much they were getting rid of their superstitions and their occult practices and worshiping the devil and what all was involved in that stuff. And they were bringing their books and there was 50,000 pieces of silver. And again, in our money today, what is that worth? If it is a denarii that's the piece of silver, a day's wage, it's around four to five and a half million dollars. That's a huge amount of money that these converts, because they were changed by the gospel, because they were changed by Christ, got rid of these things, burned them, got them off the earth. Who knows, if they wouldn't have went in there and preached, maybe some of those books would still be around and creepers would be getting them and using them in some uh, perverted, uh, wicked way. And also, God can change men's hearts so much that saints were in Caesar's household. Paul wrote in Philippians 4.22, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Would any of us go into Caesar's household? Can I preach the gospel to you? <laughs> Caesar's were bad guys. I don't know any of the Caesar's that were good. I think they say that Constantine down the road around 300 A.D., um, became a Christian and he, he baptized his army and so forth and had them hold their killing arm and their sword arm up out of the water when they got baptized. I don't know if he forced them to do that or what, but um, Caesars were not good guys. Thirdly, the gospel has not lost its power in the lives of men. It's still alive. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word... Of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word's alive in our lives. It's still God's power to save. Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not afraid of preaching the Word of God. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And this message should be preached to the end of the world. 
Matthew 28, the last part of verse 20 says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Some translations say to the end of the world. The person that's going out and making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. See, God's going to be with those people that are being evangelistic and preaching and teaching. And he's not going to desert you. He's going to be with you all the way to the end of the world. You see, the gospel hasn't lost its power and its effectiveness. And we need to be searching and we need to be going out there, finding the lost. Why? Because everybody's made in the image of God. We all have an eternal soul. It's valuable. It's important. And we need to get out there while we have a chance and find that lost coin, that lost valuable soul. What would a man give for a soul? Everything in the whole universe? <laughs> you got a bad deal if you made that trade. I don't care how much gold, silver, rubies, diamonds, sapphires, whatever, were piled up and given. Our soul's worth more than all of them. And Jesus came and died for them. And because he died for our souls, and somebody thought us important to preach the gospel to us, we need to be searching for the lost. We need to be telling people when the doors of opportunity are open. We need to preach to everyone, not just those that we think are good prospects, but even the ones that we think are bad. We shouldn't have prejudiced, prejudged attitudes and mindsets when we go. We need to just keep going before it's too late and preaching and teaching. God's word will eventually be the standard of judgment in the final day, according to John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not accept my teachings has one who will judge him. The word which I spoke, that will judge him on the last day. Let's be sowers of the seed. Let's be sowers of the word and spread it out there and teach and do what we can. Have you allowed the gospel to change your life? Have you allowed the gospel of Christ to change your life, make you into a new creature in Christ? If not, why not today? What's holding you back? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you do, Will you confess him before men right now, today, the time of your conversion, and then all the way to the end until Christ returns? Will you repent and turn and change from this worldly life and the things of this world and change and turn and become more like Jesus, our Savior, our elder brother? And will you be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? And then after you become a Christian and you're converted, will you then live a faithful life until the end?